energy. The guy told me I was no spring chicken anymore, and that's why my ankle was still hurting. I'm 33, not 133. The passion. The Red Sox handling of Xander Bogarts is a complete organizational failure. The opinions on all your favorite teams. No, not this year, but it's next year where Bill Belichick ends up on the hot seat. This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEB AM, FM, and WDEBradio.com. What's up, everybody? Brady Farkas Show here on a Thursday on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Look, I'm going to shoot you straight today. Today is the day where I wish this show was three hours. Today, we have too much to talk about. Today, we have too much to discuss, and all of it is important to you, our listener. So I'm just going to lay it out there for you. This show is 90 minutes long. We're breaking it up into two halves. The first 45 minutes are all on the lawsuit against UVM, which I'm going to tell you about momentarily. The back half are all about Xander Bogarts leaving the Red Sox. We've got two guests today. Derek Brower of Seven Days is going to join us in 15 minutes. Buster Olney is going to talk Red Sox and Bogarts with us and Rafael Devers and what happens next and that whole big mess that Hyam Bloom and company are dealing with. He's going to be with us at about 6.30. No Patriots talk today, no Celtics, no Bruins, no actual basketball talk for UVM. The lawsuit and Xander Bogarts, that's it. You can get in on the Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line, 802-585-3026. Your locally owned Napa stores in Waterbury and Morrisville. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And here we go. The opening thoughts of the Brady Farkas Show are brought to you by Sticks and Stuff, Vermont's most complete locally owned home center with locations in Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, and its Wanton Lumber. They're online at sticksandstuff.com. So, Seven Days had the story last night that Kendall Ware and two other former UVM students have filed a civil lawsuit against the university. The lawsuit alleges that the university does not do enough to help victims of rape or sexual assault. Okay, Kendall Ware, if you remember, is the former swimmer at UVM. She alleges she was raped by former UVM basketball star and now UVM or now NBA player Anthony Lamb. Two other students allege that they were attacked, one by a fraternity member, one by a club tennis player. So Ware and Lamb are the only varsity athletes in this suit or named in this suit against the school right off the top seven days had this this is an excerpt from seven days of story word for word about the where specific situation the complaint filed in u.s district court in burlington accuses school officials of mishandling reports of sexual assault and interfering with due process for victims it lays out in detail Allegations that athletic director Jeff Shulman and other employees, quote, steered Lamb's accuser, Kendall Ware, away from filing a formal complaint under the university's Title IX procedures and misled her about the available remedies as well as the potential consequences for Lamb. End of that excerpt. I encourage you to go read the entire story at 7daysvt.com. You know, people text in to the show often and people tweet into me personally and they'll often say you know Brady you don't talk a lot about Anthony Lamb 
Brady, you love UVM hoops. You talk a lot about UVM hoops, but you never mention Lamb. You never mention how he's doing with the Warriors. It's pretty great how he's playing. And you're right. I really don't mention Anthony Lamb. I have largely chosen not to cover him, other than when I have to for the afternoon news service. But on this show, I largely don't do it. And the reason why is because of the allegations that were made public last night. Now, I want to make this clear. Kendall Ware has talked about her situation before. Kendall Ware has said to the Burlington Free Press and other outlets, USA Today, I believe, earlier this year, she has said that she was allegedly raped by a now former UVM basketball player. That had been out there. We have talked about Kendall Ware's allegations before on this show. What is new news in all this is that this is the first time that Anthony Lamb has been named publicly as her attacker. I had heard it within the community. I had heard it within social media. We had a guest once say it on this show, but it had never been out there publicly on record. That is the new information here, that Anthony Lamb is officially on the record as Kendall Ware's alleged attacker. And also new information is these two other students, now former students, who are a part of this suit as well. So that's the story. The lawsuit is out there, a civil lawsuit against the university for how they handle or mishandled cases of rape and sexual assault, and that Anthony Lamb's name being put to it as Kendall Ware's attacker, that is what is new. First and foremost, this is a sports show. So we are going to talk about this story through the prism of UVM athletics. That is my job, and I will do my job. But I just want to say that, as I always have with Kendall Ware and now with these other alleged victims, I hope that they are okay. Right. First and foremost, I hope that they are, are okay. So while I'm talking about athletics, don't think that I've lost sight of that there are allegedly three women out there who are suffering and have suffered. So I'm getting th that is important to put out there because now I'm going to talk about this story within the context of sports, and I understand there's something greater than that. Uh, something greater than that. A few things to understand. This is a civil case. As I understand it, just like was the case with Deshaun Watson, Kendall Ware is not looking to put Anthony Lamb in jail, as far as I can tell. She's looking for something else, okay? And Derek Brower, who co-wrote the story, is going to be with us in 10 minutes or so. I'm going to ask him exactly what she's looking for. But again, a civil case, as I understand it, means Kendall Ware is not looking to put Anthony Lamb in jail. She's looking for something else. What that something else is, Derek Brower, I'm going to ask him. Next. There is what should happen at UVM, and there's what will happen, in my opinion. As for what should happen at UVM, if these allegations are true, the people involved should be held responsible, and they should not work at the university anymore. To me, it is that simple. If these allegations are true, then the people involved should not work at UVM anymore. That is what I think should happen. As for what will happen, sadly, in my opinion, I don't believe much. I do not believe that this lawsuit is going to change much, and it should, but I don't think it's going to. As for how I feel, I feel that people should feel safe at their university. 
People should feel safe and protected at their home away from home. And when you, a parent, send your child off to college, you should feel that the people you are entrusting with your child are doing their best to keep them safe. And you, as someone at a college who accepts a student, should be taking on that role of pseudo-guardian while those people are away from home. And if you do not do that job, if you do not perform that duty, then I don't believe that you should have that job anymore. And I'm talking about the people who are named in this suit and who have been named in the past. Athletic Director Jeff Shulman and Assistant Athletic Director Krista Balog. Okay? If these allegations are true, they should not be working at UVM anymore. A quote from Seven Days via the lawsuit. Shulman personally met with Ware several times while the Title IX process played out, despite the fact that he had no role in adjudicating Title IX complaints. Ware, a member of the school's swim team, quote, did not feel like Shulman expressed any concern about her assault, and he was clearly focused on not losing his prize asset lamb. Then, about Krista Balog, who is the associate athletic director, in a conversation with Ware's mother, Balog, the athletic department employee, impressed upon her that the formal investigation would result in Lamb's, quote, immediate and indefinite suspension and that he would be banned from using the campus gym. Balog added that such a punishment would be, quote, unfair to Lamb's teammates. If these people really tried to protect Lamb or UVM basketball over another student and another student athlete at that, then I have a huge problem with that. That, to me, again, is wrong, and it's inappropriate. And if you have not done your job in protecting your student population, then you should not have your job. That is what I think should happen. Again, that is just my opinion. These are just allegations, but if they are true, that is how I think this should play out. Sadly, I don't believe that's how it's going to play out. I don't believe anything is going to happen outside of an eventual settlement. I don't think anything's going to happen outside of an eventual settlement. And I am not a legal expert, so I could be wrong, but I'm just reading the tea leaves as I understand them, which, look, I, again, not a legal expert, so I, I could be wrong, but I'm giving you my honest opinion. Number one, look, this story has been out there for two years. There have already been student protests on campus. So there's already been an investigation into how UVM handles allegations of sexual assault and rape. And largely, the investigation said that UVM was largely doing a good job. So my gut tells me that the university will be able to defend itself and say that, hey, we have better systems in place now. And they will hide behind that. So... I think they'll say we've already made necessary adjustments. We've already bettered our processes since these allegations happened. And I think they will try to move forward. Two, the university has had multiple years now to make changes to its personnel. Jeff Shulman has been kept to this point. So has Krista Balog. No matter the allegations, no matter the student protests, no matter the calls on social media, no matter the pressure in the community, none of it has mattered in terms of getting rid of people from their jobs. If it hasn't happened in the last two years, I personally don't see it happening now.
And number three, this is a civil case. And as I saw with Deshaun Watson, those cases likely get settled. And when they get settled, the story, unfortunately, goes away publicly, largely, and everybody just continues on about their life. And that is a sad reality, at least as I see it, right? Deshaun Watson served a suspension, but the cases get settled, and now he's playing football, and he can continue to just deny, 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 and slough off every question he's asked about it. So when a settlement happens, and it seems likely that a settlement is going to happen, that's just going to be it for this story as far as we can talk about it. And spec- you know, we can't speculate anymore at that point. So what I think should happen and what I think will happen are two very different things. Texter says, I hope the Warriors and Adam Silver do the right thing depending on what comes of this. I'm going to talk about that in the next hour here. I mentioned the show is half and half. First 45 minutes on this story, last 45 minutes, you can hear me go catatonic about Xander Bogarts. Unnamed texter, they should be held accountable. Thanks for addressing this. I Well, I that is my job, so that is what I'm going to do. Um, Derek Brower co-wrote the story on this lawsuit for seven days. Chelsea Edgar wrote it with him. We've got Derek Brower on the phone line now. It's going to be Derek's first appearance with us here on the Brady Farkas Show. He's somebody that I've talked to on the afternoon news service before. Derek, I appreciate your work on this, um, and I appreciate you being with us now. How are you on this uh, on this Thursday? I'm well. Thanks for having me on, Brady. Well, I, I wish we were talking under better circumstances, but certainly a very important story that you and Chelsea Edgar helped bring to light. And look, I just went over the the story itself so i'm not going to ask you to reiterate everything that we just talked about let me ask you a couple other questions that i had reset for me the difference between a civil lawsuit and a criminal lawsuit yeah sure that yeah and that's an important distinction uh to make here uh uh you know the police have not been involved in this case as far as we know um uh uh, the woman who Anthony Lamb is accused of raping is uh, is not said that she went to police with with the allegation, uh, and so uh, the criminal justice system has not been involved as, as far as I'm aware. Um, a civil lawsuit, on the other hand, is is something that um, anyone can bring um, uh, to seek other kinds of damages uh, through you know other sorts of states and in this case federal statute. Um, you know this is this is to enforce uh, federal laws. Uh, that protect uh, people from sex-based discrimination at work or at school, for instance. Uh, There's the Vermont Public Accommodations Act, which also has similar uh, protections, as well as uh, this is is a mechanism for enforcing uh, uh, constitutional rights um, to equal protection under the law. So uh, there are a number of claims that have been made in this lawsuit under various uh, civil statutes. but uh, but the the gist is that uh, you know this is a this is a way that um, uh, folks who th- believe they've been wronged can can seek damages whether that's an injunction to to a judge's order uh, telling uh, somebody they need to stop doing something or to seek uh, uh, monetary or, or similar kinds of damages. Yeah, I was going to ask. Do we know if Kendall Ware? There are other defendants. You know, they're not dealing with with varsity athletes, which is why we're not talking about them in particular, although their stories are obviously very, very important, and I know that, but I'm focusing on Kendall Ware right now. 
Is she looking, do we know, for monetary compensation? Is she looking for people to be fired at the school? Is she looking to just bring about change at the school? All three? Do we know exactly what she's looking for? Yeah, so certainly the the civil complaint, uh, which is what I'm I'm basing uh, some of this on here, is uh, is seeking uh, various kinds of punitive and other 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 damages, which typically would be monetary. Mm. Uh, however, uh, Kendall Ware, you know, she has spoken about this incident in a number of venues over the years with other media outlets, uh, uh, having not named Anthony Lamb in those in those instances. Um, However, uh, she's spoken quite publicly about uh, uh, her desire to see uh, UVM and, and in particular UVM athletics make changes to the way it handles uh, these sorts of Title IX uh, investigations. So, uh, you know, I, I, think it's, I think it's sort of both. There is some redress for everything that uh, she says she has gone through in her life and the way this has upended her life. Uh, but also uh, she has spoken about uh, seeking uh, systemic change. Did you and Chelsea or you and or Chelsea, did you speak to Kendall or is what you're reporting is is based off of her previous conversations with other outlets and the lawsuit? Or did you speak to her directly? Yeah, my, my colleague Chelsea had reached out to her. She's not able to speak to the media uh, uh, on the advice of her attorney uh, mm-hmm. at, at the moment, which is common uh, when litigate once litigation is filed. So uh, the story uh, that uh, uh, we're talking about today is largely based on. Uh, the contents of the civil complaint, which is the you know kind of the initial filing that uh, a loyal a loyal lawyer will lodge at, in court, explaining uh, why they think they have a case, the basic contours of that. Um, now, as as a case a civil case like this proceeds, there will be depositions, uh, meaning that uh, relevant parties will be uh, uh, called in for interviews with attorneys. Uh, and there will be other kinds of uh, information requests and, uh, and and information collection that will help uh, uh, suss out, you know, what evidence there is for and against these claims. Um, and and so that's down the line here. But um, but yeah, the, but the complaint that was filed is is quite detailed. I, I cover a lot of um, uh, a lot of uh, civil uh, civil litigation in in my job here, and uh, this is uh, certainly on the more detailed end of of complaints. Um, but a lot of it is uh, a, a lot of the specific allegations, uh, again, are things that Kendall has been talking about publicly uh, for uh, for two years at least now. Um, and uh, but I think, you know, the the she had uh, withheld uh, disclosing um, the man she said had raped her uh, uh, because she didn't want it to be about him. She wanted it to be about uh, the, the university's handling uh, of the case. But certainly now that. Uh, uh, we know uh, uh, who this uh, who this man is and and uh, his stature on campus. Uh, I think it's uh, likely to bring renewed and maybe more attention to this. Derek Brower, seven days, seven days, VT.com, talking with us here about the lawsuit that does put to name Anthony Lamb as the accused rapist of Kendall Ware. And there are other um, prosecutors, I guess, maybe plaintiffs, I guess, would be maybe the right way to say this moving forward. Um, you know, in this, not against Anthony Lamb, but against other members of the UVM student body. So this is a rather detailed lawsuit. Derek helped write the story. Um, UVM is a state university. How does that impact what happens next as far as an investigation, as far as state employees being named in this uh, as people at fault? What happens here in that regard? Yeah, I mean, the 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 most significant thing, as I understand 
understand it, and I'm I, I'm not a Title IX expert. I have done some reporting on this, but uh, uh, the whole Title IX process, which has really been a sea change for uh, universities around the country in the last uh, 10 to 15 years, uh, you know that that has been that has come about, and, and the obligation for universities essentially to uh, to uh, deal with uh, allegations around sexual misconduct. Uh, in addition uh, or outside of the, the criminal process. That has come about because um, most universities, public and private, receive federal funding. And uh, Title IX is a federal, uh, 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 federal protection. And so uh, the federal government uh, requires that uh, universities uh, 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 abide by it in order to receive federal funding. So that is, the, that is sort of the backdrop for the, for the framework at issue here. Um, uh, however, you know, in terms of an investigation, I, it's it's a great question. I don't know what will what will happen uh, next year. Certainly, the uh, you know the university uh, will likely uh, defend itself in in court, uh, or perhaps uh, uh, you know engage in settlement negotiations uh, around something like this. Um, but uh, it's it's not clear. Uh, you know, there isn't a sort of immediate next step here as far as as far as triggering any kind of other investigation. Um, around that, um, and and I'm also interested in what you know what what perhaps the NBA will do, and we could talk that more about that more if you would like. But uh, you know, UVM has, uh, for its part, has uh, in response to protests over the last few years, student protests around uh, around these issues, uh, uh, hired an independent consultant to review its procedures, and uh, has posted the results online. Um, and uh, the the gist was that they the the consultant largely found they were abiding by the law. Uh, at the time, but uh, UVM says it's made some tweaks um, to improve its process uh, anyway. You know, I know obviously you're not a mind reader and you don't know exactly what's going to happen down the road here, but as someone who has followed civil litigation, I'm curious, does this type of thing typically end with someone or multiple people losing their jobs because they have, have not handled this right? Or does it end with settlement and then it goes away for lack of a better term and everybody just continues on? Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's you know, it is, and first of all, it would be um, it would be somewhat unusual for for a case to proceed all the way to trial. Um, there, are, the the legal system is very much built to encourage uh, settlement al- along the way. So, um, I think uh, in terms of what to expect next, I would I, you know, this is going to take a long time uh, for a case like this to wind through the courts, but there will be plenty of opportunities for settlement along the way. Um, the the question is uh you know how long that how long that will take at what stage they they may uh they may engage with that um uh but in terms of uh you know accountability for uh state employees uh you know who uh may have uh may or may not have done their job correctly you know that is independent really of the uh of this court process uh i would imagine uh you know that uh, that uh it could uh, what comes out in during the, the court process could certainly influence the decisions that the uh, the people who run UVM make. Um, but uh, really, it, that is an independent uh, that is an independent track, and that's something that UVM is going to have to look at and, and may or may not receive pressure to take action on um, uh, based on the things that uh, a lawsuit like this can can bring to light. Um, but I think you know again, it's worth reiterating you know the 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 allegations, the basic allegations about UVM's response uh, to the uh, uh, to the misconduct claim that was lodged against Anthony Lamb, that has been out in the public light and, and, and f- some detail for uh, for the better part of two years now. 
and so you know that would suggest that there's you know there's been plenty of time at this point uh, for UVM to take any action and response that uh, may seem fit. You know, I I've been following this story also for the last two years, and I've read the, the original Burlington Free Press report. I read the USA Today report earlier in the year. I've read your report obviously, and I've heard other anecdotal things about this story. There are absolutely people in the community calling for everybody at UVM involved with this to be fired, and I certainly can't tell them that I blame them. The one thing I have always wondered, and maybe this is present in the lawsuit, maybe it's not, but I'm curious, is what level of potential culpability is there for basketball coach John Becker, right? Everything I have ever read has been about the higher-ups in the athletic administration. Nothing has been about him in particular. Is there anything in this lawsuit that says that he was involved, again, in lack of a better term, in the cover-up, I guess, and that might be the best way I can say it. So, uh, yeah, uh, you know, John Becker's name appears in one spot in the complaint here. He's certainly not um, alleged at this point to have uh, taken any kind of active role in in um, steering the 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 response uh, any particular way, but he but he does appear in an interesting uh, in, in an interesting moment where uh, Kendall Ware uh, has uh, after she's uh, talked to the Title IX office, the victim advocate, and and decided she wanted to to lodge a, uh, a formal complaint. Uh, she told her swim team advisor and her coaches, and uh, they directed her. Uh, she says to. Um, to speak to higher ups in the athletic department, um, and including uh, the athletic director. Uh, and when she's in his office, um, the same day that this is all uh, being triggered uh, and, and explaining, being asked to explain what uh, what has happened and what she's doing to him, uh, when she leaves that meeting, uh, John, uh, the, the complaint alleges that John Becker was sitting in the waiting room uh, outside Shulman's office there. And, uh, the, you know, the, the complaint is suggesting that, uh, he must've been, uh, immediately alerted to what was going on, uh, as soon as, uh, Ware had told her coaches, um, that is, uh, you know, I don't have enough information to, to, uh, you know, weigh the merits of that. Um, uh, perhaps it could be coincidence as well. We, we don't really know yet. Um, but that's, that's the only place that, uh, that, uh, the basketball coach appears, uh, in, in this complaint. Uh, although, you know, in, in, a, in a lawsuit like this, um, in a, in civil litigation, uh, you know, a plaintiff will put everything they know, uh, themselves in the complaint to try to demonstrate that this, com- that this case has some merit. Um, but a lot of, uh, a lot more, uh, will often come out, uh, during the, uh, during the investigative process, uh, as, as the case proceeds. Eric Brower, 7days, 7daysvt.com. It's an important story. We've been talking about it. We will continue to talk about it. Appreciate the work, Derek, of you and Chelsea Edgar on this story. And uh, we will uh, you know, follow up if anything more comes out or, or as more comes out on this story as we move through the process. But appreciate you taking some time today. Yeah, thanks so much, Bernie. Absolutely. Derek Brower of 7days. And again, I encourage you to read the story for yourself with portions of the lawsuit at 7daysvt.com. Com. There is a lot there, right? There's a lot in the written story. There's a lot to talk about in what Derek and what Derek just told us. And again, as I told you right off the top, these are the days where I wish the show was three hours long. I could do an hour and a half on this story. We don't have an hour and a half today. Well, we have an hour and a half, but we have to talk about some other things as well. It's just, it's just the way that the show was constructed. And, um, 
when we come back from the CBS News update, we're going to react a little bit to what Derek had to say because it firmed up a couple of things I already thought. It answered a couple of questions that I had. And then we are going to have to move on for the day to the Xander Bogard story because I know a lot of you care about that, and I care about it too from a sports standpoint. And a lot of you want to hear my reaction to Major League Baseball free agency. I had Ross tell me earlier today on the text line that, Hey, I'm waiting in the car longer today just to hear what you say about Bogey. Well, Ross, I'm going to do that at about 6.10. So we're going to react to some of what Derek had to say when we come back from CBS News. This this is not a good story from any perspective, right? Number one, you have Kendall Ware and two other alleged victims that allege they were sexually assaulted or raped. That alone right there makes the story horrible. You have an alleged cover-up, sweeping under the rug, misleading of victims about what their options were. That, from a leadership standpoint, if those allegations are true, horrible. Horrible for these individuals, horrible for the victims, horrible for the university. And then, on a much smaller level, if you are a UVM basketball fan, a UVM athletics fan, you too, this is horrible for you also. Because there is a player that you cheered and spent money to go watch and have followed and have supported and have cared about that just might not be the person that you thought they were. And that always is going to be tough from a fan's perspective. That is obviously way lower on the totem pole than the other two. But none of this, nothing about this story is anything less than awful. And Derek said this could take a very long time to either settle or go through the courts. So I don't know when when the next time we're going to get an update on this story is. I really don't know. But we will continue to follow it as those updates come whenever they may be. We're going to get the CBS News update. We're going to do some very quick cutting of Derek's audio. We'll take a, we'll take you through some of my takeaways next here on DEV. 2585-3026. This is Field Yates of ESPN, and you're listening to The Brady Farkas Show on WDEV Radio and the WDEV app. Thank you very much, Field. Brady Farkas Show here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. We are going to talk about Xander Bogarts and the Red Sox in about five minutes, and that will be the rest of the show today. Buster Olney of ESPN is going to stop by with us at about 6.30. Buster, kind enough to amend his time with us to allow us more time here at the start of the show to talk about this UVM lawsuit. So Buster will be with us again at about 6.30. Uh, Texter says, it will take a great deal of courage to deal with this. I assume you mean for Kendall Ware and for the other plaintiffs in this civil lawsuit. I would argue they've already shown a, a, a huge amount of courage by bringing it up by bringing this lawsuit about in the first place and in Kendall Ware's particular situation for going public with this two years ago. Again, the story is not new. The naming of Anthony Lamb is new, but Kendall Ware went public with this two years ago while still a student on campus, and she spoke to Alex Abrami of the Burlington Free Press. So I would argue there's already been an extensive amount of courage for these alleged victims. Um, All right, I appreciate... Derek Brower from Seven Days for joining us. And you can read again his story at sevendaysvt.com. Derek helped me understand more of the intricacies of a civil case versus a criminal case. I appreciate that. I am a sports radio host. I am not a I do not have a law degree. I am not a lawyer. People like Derek who come on and simplify simplify things, I appreciate. 
He also helped me understand other aspects of this lawsuit. And frankly, I, I took away from Derek a lot of the things I talked about before Derek came on. To me, this is just me reading the room. To me, the case is likely to get settled. And as a result, I don't feel like any discipline is going to happen to those who are allegedly involved at the university. And we're talking about Krista Balog and Jeff Shulman. And there are some others who are non-athletic department people who I, whose names I don't know as well and I don't have in front of me. But when we talk about the other two plaintiffs, there are some others involved in their cases. I don't, I don't believe that anything is going to happen disciplinary to them. My guess is that the plaintiffs and the school settle, the school re-amends their processes for dealing with sexual assault and rape allegations, and everybody goes on with their jobs. That is just my gut. Here's kind of what led me to that from Derek's uh, understanding here. And first of all, it would be um, it would be somewhat unusual for for a case to proceed all the way to trial. Um, there, are, the the legal system is very much built to encourage uh, settlement along the way. So, um, I think uh, in terms of what to expect next, I would I, you know this is going to take a long time uh, for a case like this to wind through the courts, but there will be plenty of opportunities for settlement along the way. Once settlement happens, then I think the story. Not goes away because that would be that would be insensitive to the alleged victims, right? It's never going to go away for them. But from the public eye and from the disciplinary aspect, the story will end. So I do not believe that people are going to lose their job once a settlement happens. Whether a settlement happened tomorrow or in a year, I don't believe that people are going to lose their jobs at UVM. Further kind of proving that to me is, as Derek told us, this lawsuit is not about people losing jobs. Kendall Ware in the lawsuit, as I understand it, is not saying, I want X, Y, and Z fired. She's saying, I want the school to be held responsible for how they handled this and for what they did to me and for what they did to others. She's not calling out individual people and asking for their pink slips. She wants the school punished as an entire entity. And as far as I can tell, the school's punishment is going to come through public embarrassment, of which there was, has been already and will continue to be, and the money they spend to settle. And that is where I think that this is going to go. If something was going to be done personnel-wise to people at UVM, I believe it would have already been done. Right? This story has been out there for two years, and nobody that I know of has lost their jobs yet. Jeff Shulman has a job. Krista Balog has a job. If they were going to lose those jobs, I think it would have happened already. Derek Brower kind of addressed that with me too. Uh, but in terms of uh, you know accountability for uh, state employees, uh, you know who uh, may have uh, may or may not have done their job correctly, you know that is independent really of the uh, of this court process. Uh, I would imagine uh, you know that uh, that. Uh, it could uh, what comes out in during the, the court process could certainly influence the decisions that the uh, the people who run UVM make. Um, but uh, really, it, that is an independent uh, that is an independent track, and that's something that UVM is going to have to look at and, and may or may not receive pressure to take action on. Now, there could be public pressure, right? Public pressure could always force somebody's hand. That that is absolutely true. So somebody could lose their job as a result of public pressure. 
But we've seen public pressure for two years already and nothing's happened, which is why I think that nothing will happen on that front here. Derek also points out correctly that this lawsuit, again, is not about people losing their jobs, right? He says that's an independent track. And he says maybe someone's hand will get forced based along the court proceedings along the way. I don't think we're going to get to that point. I think we're going to get to a settlement. So I have said what I think should happen in that if these allegations are true, that people should lose their jobs, Jeff Shulman, Krista Balog, Krista Balog, I think, excuse me, that they should, if these are true, they should lose their jobs. I've said that. What I think will happen is that they're not going to. And Texter wanted to know about what's going to happen with Anthony Lamb and the Warriors in the NBA. That I don't know well enough. My gut's going to tell me that nothing's going to happen to him either, right? He's not, he is not named in this lawsuit. This is not a civil lawsuit against Anthony Lamb. This is a civil lawsuit against the university. So I think the NBA will look at it and say the case was settled and this happened when he was not in the NBA. That, that's how I think that this goes. I could be wrong. Maybe someone with a better law expertise than me can, can put me wrong on that, but I think the NBA looks at it and says this happened when he was not in the NBA. It did not happen under our watch. It did not happen while he was subjected to our personal conduct policy. And the case is settled whenever that happens. And he's not named as a, as a, he's not named, the, the, the suit is not at him personally. So we, we can, we can go on not liking Anthony Lamb and not supporting Anthony Lamb and not rooting for Anthony Lamb. But as far as his ability to be on a roster, I think he's going to have every ability to be on a roster. Will the Warriors release him? Again, if public pressure gets too great, yes, I think that they would. But I don't see public pressure getting too much for Anthony Lamb, right? Anthony Lamb is not Deshaun Watson. Deshaun Watson is the highest profile person in an organization. He's at the highest profile position in sport. Anthony Lamb is not. So unless public pressure gets too great, then... I don't know that it's going to. And that that's sad also. We should care just as much about case X as case Y. Case A is case B. But I don't know that Anthony Lamb is going to elicit that reaction from the from from people at the NBA level. He should, if it's true. But I don't know that that's going to be the case. It is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Texter says a great point. I assume you mean about what I just said about Lamb and his status at the NBA. Again, that is just a gut. I do not know officially. I don't have any sources at the NBA level on this. This is just me talking about how I think that things like this go. All right. I promised you the first half of the show would be about the UVM allegations, or the UVM lawsuit, I should say. I promised you the second half of the show is going to be about Xander Bogarts and is going to be about the Red Sox. So let's get into that. This is the Brady Farkas Show, version two on this day here on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. The lawsuit is important. We will continue to update you on it if and when things happen on this, whether it's in the period of days, weeks, months, or years. And you can listen to the Derek Brower interview again on the Brady Farkas Show podcast channel, which we'll have up after the show. Now, back half of the show. The Boston Red Sox massively, massively failed with Xander Bogarts. Now, yesterday when we left here, there was a lot of optimism 
around the Red Sox, at least from me. When we left the show yesterday, they had added to their bullpen. They had added Matasaka Yoshida, a guy who profiles to be a good leadoff hitter. I had it a little bit wrong. I was thinking he was more of a power hitter. I did not realize he was as small as he was. That was my mistake yesterday, caught up in the moment. Profiles as a good leadoff hitter. The vibes yesterday when we left were high. There was the talk and the momentum about bringing Bogarts back. I walked out of here yesterday happy. And around midnight, the vibes all came crashing down. As it was announced that Xander Bogarts was leaving the Red Sox, signing with the Padres for 11 years and $280 million. It was revealed today the Red Sox were not even in the same metaphorical ballpark as the Padres. Basically, the Boston Globe reported the Red Sox offered six years and like $160 million. They got blown out of the water, and we were all left feeling like noted Red Sox expert and fan Jared Carabas. 11 years. 11 years. 280 million. Xander Bogarts is going to the San Diego Padres. I, what the f happened? What the f happened? Today, all I heard on the Red Sox side of things, everything's great. Don't worry about it. He'll be back tonight, tomorrow. We're good. It's not. It's not good. It's not good. It's not good, and Jared's right. What the F happened? That's how we should all be feeling today. This is an absolute embarrassment, and it's an absolute embarrassment that it ever got to this point. Let me make this perfectly clear. 11 years and $280 million is a terrible contract for Xander Bogarts. It is absolutely terrible. A guy who has already been questionable defensively, a guy who was losing his power last year, is now going to a much worse park for hitters, and he's there for 11 years. This In that ballpark, this is going to be a bad contract much sooner rather than later. It absolutely is. This is a terrible contract that the Padres have given. That said, or by the way, I don't blame the Red Sox for not matching it. I do not blame them, not in the slightest. I don't blame Bogarts for taking it, and I don't blame the Red Sox for not matching it. It's absolutely insane. But I'm I'm mad it ever got to this point. I'm not mad at what happened last night. Red Sox made the right decision to not match that offer. Where the Red Sox screwed up was the 10 months that led us to last night. It is that simple. If you're looking for something to be mad at, don't be mad the Red Sox didn't match it. Don't be mad that Bogarts took it. Be mad at the utter stupidity of the last 10 months. Because that's where all this happened. When your favorite player and your best overall player walked out the door last night around midnight, it was solidified with everything you did or didn't do in the last 10 months prior. The Boston Globe reported today, today, that last year in spring training, Xander Bogarts would have taken a deal akin to Jose Altuve's with the Astros, right? A, 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 a player that had won a World Series, a player that had won a batting title, a very good player, a player that came up through the system. Xander Bogarts would have taken a deal akin to Jose Altuve. Do you know what Jose Altuve's deal was? Five years and $151 million. If the Red Sox had done this properly last offseason, they could have had Xander Bogarts for less than half the years and nearly 50% of the price. 
if the Red Sox had done this last offseason correctly, they could have had Xander Bogarts for five years and 150-ish million dollars. You should have wanted to do it then. And if you did that, you never, ever would have been put in a position to have to try to match the insane contract that Xander Bogarts was asked last night or was given last night. But you didn't offer that kind of deal. You offered him an insulting one-year and $30 million extension. And even after you ticked him off, he came back out in May and said he'd be open to negotiating in season. He gave you every chance to negotiate in season also. And the Red Sox, according to the Boston Globe, did not give him one offer during the season. Not one. And they didn't go to him right after the season ended with a contract offer. They had ample chances to make this right. They had ample chances to get Bogarts at what was now a relative huge bargain, and they didn't. And that is a Haim Bloom failure. That is an ownership failure. I maintain this belief that ownership is the reason for this Red Sox cheapness. Haim Bloom doesn't write $150 million checks. He doesn't write $300 million checks. Ownership does, and I believe this ultimately falls on them. And if you look at it now, not only do the Red Sox look bad in the court of public opinion, the Red Sox are just bad. Now, they have a better bullpen than a lot of American League teams right now, but otherwise, they are a bad baseball team. This team finished in last place last year, and guess what? Christian Vasquez is gone, J.D. Martinez is gone, and Xander Bogarts is gone. They are still the worst team in the division. And the teams they were better than last year, a lot of them got way better than they are. The Texas Rangers are now better than the Red Sox. The Los Angeles Angels are now better than the Red Sox. At this point, I am confident only that the Red Sox are better still than the A's who are tanking and the Royals. That's it. The Red Sox are at the bottom of their division, and they're nearly at the bottom of the American League. The Red Sox are a bad baseball team. They look bad. They're perceived bad. They are bad. And you know what? Speaking of bad, I want to tell you who I feel really bad for in all of this. I don't feel bad for Haim Bloom. I don't feel bad for John Henry. They brought this on themselves. I don't even feel bad for us for me, the Red Sox fan, I've covered a Red Sox World Series. I've see, I will have storylines to talk about no matter what. I don't feel bad for the 35-year-old Red Sox fan or the 45-year-old Red Sox fan that's now seen four titles in 18 years. I don't feel bad. I don't feel bad for Xander Bogarts who just got generational money. I feel bad for the kids. In all of this, I feel the most bad for the kids because kids today are waking up or woke up and realize that their favorite player no longer plays for their favorite team. And as an adult now, I get so wrapped up in the business of this and the contract values and this, that, and the other. I don't want to forget what it's like to be a fan and what it's like to be a kid. And today I feel bad for those kids. I remember what it was like the first time that my sports heart got broken. I remember. Okay? Now, Ken Griffey Jr. is my all-time favorite player. But when he left the Mariners, I don't remember being brokenhearted. 
I was living in North Carolina at the time. I was far away from Seattle. I didn't get to watch a lot of games. The Braves were on. They were really good. So there was a little period where I kind of ditched the Mariners when I was, you know, nine or ten years old. And I also thought to myself, you know what? Griffey's gone, but we got A-Rod. And after the 2000 season, I was living in New York. The Mariners were good. They went to the playoffs in 2000. And I was back. I was all in on the Mariners. And after 2000, Alex Rodriguez left. I was 11 years old. He left the Texas Rangers for a ludicrous deal. 10 years, $252 million. The biggest deal in the history of sports at that time. At 11 years old, I saw my favorite player leave my favorite team for the money. And I cried. And from that day forward, sports to me was never the same. I would have learned that lesson anyways, right? But at 11 years old, that day for me, it changed forever. I knew, I learned that day that sports was not about loyalty. It was not about the love of the game. It was not about... It was not about my favorite team. It was about money. That day, I learned that sports was a business, and I've never forgotten it. Alex Rodriguez ruined my sports innocence. He took it away from me, and today, that happened to some kid. Some father out there that's listening had to tell their son or daughter, who's somewhere between the ages of 7 and 12, that Xander Bogarts, number two, does not play for the Red Sox anymore. And I feel bad for that parent, and I feel bad for that kid that today had their life changed forever sports-wise. And if you think I'm being dramatic, I don't think that I am. I remember A-Rod leaving and me crying like it was yesterday. And somewhere along the lines, you all had a moment, too, where you realized that sports was a business. It was not just a game. And I feel bad for those kids today, right? I don't feel bad for High and Bloom, right? He, he's in a tough spot, right? People talking bad about him. He's getting ripped on TV, radio, newspapers. I don't feel bad for him. He's made a lot of money in his career. He's a smart guy. He, he'll be fine. John Henry, yeah, he's doing just fine no matter what people say about him. But somewhere, there's a parent and a kid who are hurting today. And I feel bad for them. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Uh, Kyle in South Burlington losing Carlton Fisk was always a punch in the gut. Seeing him in a White Sox uniform always hurt. There you go. Texter says a great perspective. I have three World Series. That's true. You do. And an eight-year-old kid, look, they've technically got a World Series too in 2018, but their favorite player doesn't play there anymore, and that's hard. Gary says, I feel bad for the players left on the roster. What hope do they have? Well, look, the players left on the roster are going to be resilient because that's who professional athletes are. They know it's a business. Professional athletes, they know it's a business. Honestly, the guys left on the team, I think they're happy for their guy that he got $280 million. I think... Some of the guys on the Red Sox will look at it like, ah, damn, you know, I can't believe we did that. What are we doing? Do I really want to be here? But they're going to think that they're going to be good. 
hey, we got Story back, and he's healthy. Hey, we got a full season of Casas, and hey, we got this guy Yoshida, and he's pretty good. We've added to our bullpen. I think the players, at least early in spring training, they're going to be optimistic, and in this early season, they're going to play their tail off, and they're going to think they got a shot. And if they start out 15-7, and seven, surprisingly, then they're going to keep thinking they have a shot. And if they start out 7-15, and 15, they're going to play really hard still because – they want to get traded at the deadline. They're playing for a contract in the future. Like the players are also largely going to be okay. The kids who had their heart broken, they're the ones who today are not. Eventually, they will callous over just like I did. But they are the ones who are not okay today. It's the Brady Farkas show on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Buster Olney. ESPN MLB Insider is going to be with us here next. What does he think of the Red Sox letting Xander Bogarts walk? What does he think happens next with Rafael Devers? That's the next thing we have to worry about, the next domino to fall. Buster is going to be with us next during the Brady Farkas Show on DEV. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show, right here on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Um, sadly, this is exactly what I said would happen. It did not take long for what I said would happen to happen. Um, Alex Schultz, who works for SanFranciscoGate.com. I don't know if that's a newspaper or a website. I apologize. But the Golden State Warriors were asked today about the allegations against Anthony Lamb. Right, the civil lawsuit against the University of Vermont. I told you I don't think anything will happen to Lamb unless the Warriors get enough public pressure. And I said that because he's not named directly, that's how one way they're going to get around this. And the other way they'll get around it is because it happened while he was in college, allegedly, not while he was under, their, under the NBA's personal conduct policy. And basically, that's exactly what the Warriors have said. According to uh, San Francisco Gate, the Warriors delivered a statement. Quote, Anthony is not a defendant in this recent lawsuit, and to our knowledge, he has never been charged with any wrongdoing in any legal case. Prior to signing Anthony in September, we did our due diligence with the NBA and his prior teams, as we do with all players. If any new information comes to light, we will certainly evaluate it and act accordingly. That's what the Warriors said. That's basically exactly what I said they would say. Right? So now we are now left with this choice. We won't root for the Warriors. We won't root for Lamb. We won't root for his success. That That's where we are now at as fans. Because as of right now, nothing is happening to Anthony Lamb at the NBA level. Again, I don't know what's true and what's not. So these are all allegations. But if these are true, you would like a team to not employ a person like that. The Warriors have said, now at this point, he's not named directly, so... We don't have to answer anything. That's a sad reality of the situation. I told you what would happen, and it did. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Roger from Middlebury. Great story, Brady, about the kids. What do you think Devers is going to think about how the Red Sox handled this? They were joined at the hip. Uh, On one hand, I think Rafael Devers is really questioning whether or not he wants to play for the Red Sox. Right? Like, how much do they value homegrown players? How much do they value their own, the guys who have, you know, put out blood, sweat, and tears for them? And on the other hand, I think Raphael Devers looks at it like, whoa, 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 look how much money Xander just got, how much is coming my way. 
So I think there is a reaction from Devers to like, damn, I can't believe my team did this. Do I really want to stay here? But also, damn, how much money am I going to get in the future? We're going to talk about all of that right now. All the insight into everything going on in baseball. It's time for our weekly conversation with ESPN Baseball Insider and Vermont native, Buster Olney. I'm just about ready to bet the family farm in Vermont. On the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. All right, Buster Olney now with us here on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. And I got to say, I have talked to Buster a lot in my career. He's been with us every Thursday for the last year and a half, two years on this show. Before that, I talked to Buster for four years every Wednesday at my previous station. And before that, I talked to Buster a handful of times when I was filling in on my very first station. So I have talked to Buster a lot in my career. And this might be the day I wanted to talk to him most. This might be the day I am most excited to talk with him. Buster, thank you for being with us. How are you? I'm doing okay. Uh, And I was excited to talk to you because early this morning, uh, I texted you and I said, what are we going to talk about today? (laughs) And you actually answered specifically with a list of topics. And I was like, Brady, I'm I'm just kidding. Of course I know what we're going to talk about today. After the exit of Xander Bogart, yeah, it's been a, it's been a wild twenty four hours because yesterday morning I was excited about the Kenley Jansen signing. I'm like, okay, the bullpen's getting better. Then they go get Yoshida right as we got off the air yesterday. I was like, okay, now they got a leadoff guy with some pop. That's good. And then last night around midnight, it all came crashing down. And let me just start here with you on this. I do not blame the Red Sox for not paying 11 years and $280 million for Xander Bogarts. I don't think that a 30-year-old player is worth 11 years. I think there's questions about his defense. So I get not going to that level. For me, what I'm mad about is that it ever got to that level. Xander Bogarts wanted to be a Red Sox player for life, I presume. And if they had done this properly last offseason or in season, I think they could have had him for five for 150 or six for 175 or something that would be considered a huge bargain based on what happened last night. So I'm not angry at the events of last night. I'm angry at everything that led up to last night. Do you feel like I'm in the right here? A hundred percent. I think their handling of Sandy Bogart was mind-boggling, as you and I have uh, really talked about all year. And it punctuated at the end with him walking out the door for this offer for the San Diego Padres. From the Red Sox perspective, it never should have gotten to a point where he was even a free agent. Um, And when you really think about the, you know, from 30,000 feet, how they handled all this, you know, as I tweeted out this morning, they offered Yoshida, who's a really, you know, potentially good player. He's not proven in the big leagues, but he's, uh, you know, potentially a good player. They offered Yoshida, who's about the same age as Bogart, uh, as more money, $105 million, You know, that's how much it cost them to get him. Then they offered Bogarts in the spring at $90 million. That offer in the spring, it was incomprehensible at the time. And now where you see where the market is gone, uh, it, it really, I, I think, underscores the fact their front office, their ownership, whoever designed that $90 million offer, made a huge mistake and it's right in line with that mistake that was made with john lester where in the end it really bears out a a a huge uh gaffe by the red sox and as you pointed out this is a player who wanted to stay with the red sox who signed a team-friendly deal a few years ago 
uh, you know, very respected. And on top of that, you know, there's always the question when a player goes to Philadelphia, New York, or Boston, can the player handle that market? You know, Carl Crawford couldn't. Sonny Gray couldn't. Xander Bogart was the guy who, who demonstrated he absolutely could. Uh, and yet, here he goes out the door. It's shocking. And I got to believe that as we move forward, there's going to be more conversations within the Red Sox organization where they're going to self-assess and say, boy, how did we blow this? I have a ton of scattered questions that I'm going to try to bring all together here, maybe at the end. But what happens with Rafael Devers now? Because if I'm Devers and I see the money that is out there, I not, like I want to go to free agency now. Like someone at his age, if Trey Turner and Xander Bogarts can get eleven years and nearly three hundred million or three hundred exactly at their age, and Judge can get what he got. If I'm Devers, I want to hit the market and I want thirteen for three seventy five. I want fourteen for four hundred. I don't want anything the Red Sox can offer me right now. So I feel like the Red Sox are then left with two options: one, make a massive offer now. 15 for 410 or something and try to save some face or you got to trade them because they're not going to pay a free agent price next year based on what's happening what, what do you think is the best course of action with Devers now yeah and that right now Devers has the Red Sox completely at his mercy I mean that's the reality of the situation you know Aaron Judge got to a place in his negotiations with the Yankees where the team needed the player more than the player needed the team and he wound up, you know, getting an offer that increased by seventy percent. That for me is a blueprint of what's going to happen with Devers. And I, I can't tell you how it's going to end because I think your read on it is exactly right. If you're Devers, you can do the same thing. Judge did say, nope, not taking that offer. Nope, and you're just waiting for the numbers to go up. And I do think, you know, based on you know Trey Turner being offered three forty-two, Judge getting three sixty, uh, you know, Bogarts getting two eighty. If you're Devers, that offer from the Red Sox has to start with the number four. Yeah. It really does <laughs> because of his age. You know, he's so much younger than all those guys that we've been talking about. He's in a position, and now that the Red Sox front office, their ownership is in this very defensive position, the fans are going nuts about Betts leaving, about Bogart's leaving. He can just sit back and knowing that if he doesn't work out a deal with the Red Sox, if he doesn't get exactly what he wants, the contract that starts with the number four, well, guess what? He can go into the open market next year, and I think it's been demonstrated somebody's going to pay him. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Buster Olney with us here on the Brady Farkas Show as he is every Thursday on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Look, you, you have to pivot now if you're the Red Sox. People are wondering, oh, could they just go get Carlos Correa? Well, I got news for you. If they're not paying Bogarts 280, they're not paying Correa 340 or whatever the hell, hell it's going to take to get him. So that you're, that dream is done as far as I'm concerned. So the I guess the options are, are you playing Trevor Story at shortstop and moving Kike Hernandez to second and trying to deal with the outfield? Or... Are you trying to move Kike to shortstop and keep Story at second to deal with the outfield? Are you playing Arroyo at second and keep in Story at short and keeping Kike in center? I don't know what's next, but I got news for you. None of the options I just outlined are as good as they would be with Xander Bogarts here. No, I tweeted out the projected Red Sox lineup as of today, uh, earlier you know today, and the response from Red Sox fans was a bunch of emojis that involve vomiting. Yeah. Uh, let's say it's not even close. And look, yeah, I think when they signed Trevor Story, the thought in the organization was 
that you know he could potentially move to shortstop if Bogarts wound up leaving or if he changed positions. Here's the thing. I mean, I heard from multiple other teams during the Trevor Story betting, yeah, he's going to need Tommy John surgery. And even last year, as good as he was at second base, what I got back from evaluators was there's something not right about his throwing. Uh, I don't know if he can play shortstop. I do know, you know, they potentially, as you laid out, you have an option with Kike Hernandez. You have an option with Trevor Story. You have an option with uh, with Christian Arroyo. I don't think they're great shortstop options. I don't think it's a, you know, it's a, it's a great collection of, of players in the same way that I don't think you necessarily have great, uh, you know, great potential for guys to hit in the middle of your order. The projected lineup as of today, if you look at it, might have Trevor Story being the cleanup hitter. Really? Uh, you know, I it it really is uh, incredible that they're in this position, and especially when you line it up within the context of the division. The Yankees get Aaron Judge back. They won 100 games last year. The Blue Jays are going to be upgraded. The Orioles are getting better. The Rays are always competitive. It's pretty clear as of this morning the Red Sox are the, the worst team in the American League East, and I personally don't think it's close. I'm not trying to be prisoner of the moment here, but based on what happened with with Bogarts and now what we've outlined with Devers and that really maybe the best course of action is to trade him. I understand they lose a lot of face in that even more than they already have, but maybe the organization's best move is to trade Devers. At that point, are you going in full sell mode if you're the Red Sox? I mean, really, you've lost. Okay. No, Brady, you're not going sell mode today. You know, they have to sell tickets. They have to give their, their fan base something to hang on to. And it wouldn't make any sense to, you know, upgrade the bullpen the way they did with these two older relievers, you know, Kenley Jansen, Chris Martin. You're not going to make those moves and then say, well, you know what, we're not going to win this year. But let's face it, if they're not if they're not contending next July, you absolutely think about trading Devers, who would be one of the two biggest impact players available next summer, the other being Shohei Otani. Uh, I, I think you, uh, at this stage, you know, if you can't sign Devers, if you're not willing to give him an offer that starts with a number four, uh, then you probably have to start to anticipate the potential of, of uh, you know, dealing him. Uh, from what I heard, you know, in 2022, uh, they did not do much scouting of other teams' minor league systems after June. That needs to change. That planning needs to change. They have to start really heavily scouting other teams' minor league organizations starting in spring training because they do potentially have this huge blockbuster sell-off with Devers coming down if they can't sign him. You know, two interesting ideas for what else could come next are things I heard one yesterday from Tom Karen of Nesson and one from Will Fleming of the Red Sox Radio Network. The Red Sox have a surplus of pitching. I don't think we would call it great surplus, but they have a surplus. Do you think they could package up some of these prospects or fringy prospects? And like, could they trade Bobby Dahlbeck and Jaron Duran and Tanner Houck to get something useful? That's part one. And number two, I think Alex Verdugo only has two years left on his deal. He hasn't really turned into the player they thought. No. And they've got Yoshida there who's going to play left field, it sounds like. Do you think they could move on from Verdugo to try to get something useful? You can look in it, into it, uh, you know, as we've talked about uh, this winter, uh, left-handed hitters uh, have more value in the marketplace than they've had before. But here's the problem for the, the Red Sox right now with the, the, how generally weak their 40-man roster is. It's whack-a-mole time. So you're right. You could take Alex Verdugo into the trade market 
try to take advantage of that value now. But guess what? You need a right fielder. Yeah, he's a pretty good right fielder. He's a guy with an arm and you know with range who who actually you know is decent at that spot. And then you'd have to go and replace that guy if you you know trade Tanner Houck. Then you'd be looking for someone like him in terms of being a young, productive pitcher. There, it, it's a really thin roster, and it really jumped out. I know to uh, friends of mine who work in baseball the other day when Hein Bloom says, "You know, we're going to acquire eight or nine players." Uh, yeah. <laughs> like that. That sort of mentality. The feeling is, my God, where are you going to get those eight or nine players, and how much is it going to cost? And if you're going to go out and get eight or nine players, how is it that you had the first guy taken in the Rule 5 draft? <laughs> I, I, there are just so many things going on with the Red Sox right now that just make you scratch your head. Buster, I'll get you out of here on this. It, it's hard for me to find optimism after what happened last night with Bogarts, but when I got off the air yesterday, I was excited about the the addition of Yoshida, and you know I, I had the particulars a little bit wrong. I knew the stat line. I kind of thought he was bigger than he was. I thought he was a middle-of-the-order guy. It turns out he's only 5'8". It sounds like he's a top-of-the-order guy. Yeah. Uh, I heard him described as kind of Andrew Benintendi, but with power. Uh, Keith Law shredded him and the Red Sox on The Athletic yesterday, so I don't know what to make of Yoshida now. What have you heard? Uh, a range of opinions, and I'll never go back to, I'll never forget, uh, you know, at the spring training in 2001, and you know, you're going to know where I'm going to go with yeah. this. Uh, you hear from evaluators that, boy, the Seattle Mariners investment in that, uh, you know, that outfield looks terrible. This guy looks awful. We don't know if he's going to fit. That was Ichiro, uh, and, <laughs> you know, who looked awful in spring training that year, and then went on to become a Hall of Fame player. Uh, so I, I you know, and when you look at his statistics, he has such an unusual skill set. Uh, basically, two times as many walks as strikeouts. He puts the ball in play. He's got a little bit of pop. Um, you know, there's always the question with any player coming to the major leagues for the first time, how can they handle that adjustment? I also think that there's going to be a little bit extra on him because he's going to be going to Boston at a time when the fan base is really upset. Let's face it, if he gets off the first month and he's hitting a buck fifty, he's going to get booed in Fenway because uh, and, and if the Red Sox are losing, I agree with you. I, I find the, uh, you know, the profile to be interesting. I, I, in a vacuum, I would say I, I think that's a good move by the Red Sox. I like a big market team kind of taking a little bit of a chance on a guy with an unusual skill set, um, but uh, offensive skill set because he's, he's thought to be not a very good outfielder at all. Uh, but I, within the, the realm of everything that's gone on, the idea that you would spend more money to get Yoshida than you offered Xander Bogarts in the spring, it makes no yeah. sense. No, I... I uh... I, I certainly feel differently today than I did yesterday, uh, you know, 23 hours from now. I'm still, trying to wrap my, I'm still trying to wrap my head around what's gone on here and what is going on. Buster Olney helping provide some clarity as always. We didn't even get to Aaron Judge. We didn't even get to Trey Turner. Which team improved the most? The Texas Rangers apparently have an endless stream of cash. We'll have to save all that <laughs> for next week. Or so. the Padres for that yeah. matter. Yes. You know, what, how about the Padres being out in the market offering money all over the place? Yeah, it's been a good week. It's been a, it was an active week. I don't know that I'd call it good. So, Buster, we'll talk, we'll talk in seven days. Okay. Absolutely. Buster Olney, the best ESPN MLB insider. Um, Buster's great, you know, and, and he's right. Kind of echoing what I said. The Red Sox handling of this is laughable. 
the handling of the Xander Bogart situation is laughable. There's a lot of good stuff that Buster said in there. We're going to do our homework tonight, cut it all up, probably react to it tomorrow, probably right off the bat, and uh, we'll really dissect what Buster had to say. But there is one thing immediately I want to disagree with Buster on. Okay, Tomorrow we can go through everything Buster said. Right now there's one thing I very much disagree on. I'll tell you what that is next on evradio.com. All right, welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. Thanks to Buster Olney, as always, for joining us. That interview soon available on the Brady Farkas Show podcast channel. The Red Sox are absolutely screwed when it comes to Rafael Devers. Absolutely screwed. As Buster outlined, Devers has so much leverage right now, it's not even funny. Let me lay out the scenario for you. Rafael Devers sees the market. He sees 30-year-olds like Trey Turner and Xander Bogarts getting $300 million or very close to it. He knows the market next offseason will be even more nuts, right? Does he not? Especially for someone who's only 27 years old, which Devers will be next year. If Devers sees 30-year-olds getting $300 million, he's got to think a 27-year-old can get $340 375, 400, and oh, by the way, Otani's going to be a free agent next year, so he'll drive up the price for everybody too. So Devers will have absolutely no problem next offseason getting big money. So if I'm Devers, I'm like, just get me to free agency. Show me the money. Like that's If I go to free agency, somebody's going to pay me, and they're going to pay me huge. That's what I'm thinking if I'm Devers. So here are the Red Sox options. Play the season out with Devers. He'll hit free agency, and you'll lose him just like you lost Xander because you're not going to pay him $425 million. You can do that. That's option one, which stinks. Option two, you can make Devers an absolutely insane offer right now. Right? Like, if I'm Devers and I'm thinking about the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, how are you going to buy me out of thinking about that? What are you going to give me? 15 years in 430? That would probably be enough to get me not thinking about free agency. But then what have you done? You've paid a guy until he's 41, which the Padres just did, and we're crushing them for it. If you want to buy out Devers' desires to go to free agency, you're going to have to make him an insanely laughable offer that you don't want to make. That's not a particularly good option either. And number three, you can trade him and try to recoup something for him so you don't lose him for nothing. None of them are good. And I got to tell you, this is where I disagree with Buster. Buster says, trade him at the deadline. I'm saying, you might, you got to trade Xander. If you're going to trade Rafael Devers, you got to trade him this offseason. As much as it hurts, you got to rip the band aid off. Because let me lay this scenario out there for you. Let's just say the Red Sox are hovering around contention next year, right? Like it's June, early July. They're hovering around contention. You can't trade Rafael Devers if you're within earshot of the playoffs. They were within earshot of the playoffs this year. They didn't trade Bogarts or J.D. Martinez. They didn't trade anybody but Vasquez. If they're within earshot of the playoffs and the playoff race, they can't trade Devers. I got to trade him now before that becomes a real-life scenario. 
and I got to try to get major league talent for him. I can't trade Devers for a bunch of 17-year-olds, but I, I got to trade him for, like, if I don't want to lose him for nothing or make him an insane offer, I got to trade him this offseason because I can't take the chance that I'm hovering three games out of a, the, the second or the third wild card spot on July 15th and be like, oh, man, we're close. Do we? I can't take that chance. So it's either lose him for a comp draft pick, sign him now to something you don't ever want to approach, or trade him today, trade him tomorrow. That's where I do. I, I can't trade him at the deadline. I can't take the chance. Like if if the Red Sox play out the season with him, and they go into the to the near the deadline and they're thirty games out, well then sure. But I don't know that they're bad enough to be thirty games out. They're not good enough to win the World Series. I don't know they're bad enough to be 30 games out. If they're just hovering with an earshot, they're going to be forced to keep Devers, and that wouldn't be smart either. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. A ton to get to tomorrow. Phil Perry, NBC Sports Boston, is going to be with us. We'll take a look at some of the NFL games over the weekend, and we'll react to what Buster had to say as well. Have a great uh, night, everybody. Jazz with George Thomas is coming up next. The Brady Farkas Show podcast channel will soon be updated. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and WDEVradio.com.